I love the picture um, that the thing Chris shared right as he was finishing there before we sang of the, the a police officer friend of his who said, when they get to that point of apprehending the suspect they're pursuing, you know, they're told, put their hands up. And in that moment, they have an opportunity to make a choice. And they can run or they can surrender. And, it, and it's fitting because, and Chris touched on some of this, and so I don't really want to belabor this a lot, but if, if you're following along with Colossians as we've been working through it, if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, then you know that this morning we have reached the point where it, you might say it's kind of the pinnacle. Um, and, and it's this foundation that is being laid for the church that is Christ and the preeminence and the superiority of Christ. And, you know, as we begin this morning, I, I just want to encourage each of you, as we look at some of these um, things that uh, Paul would ascribe Christ to being head over, um, one of the things that, that, you know, we have to just be willing to acknowledge is that Look, belonging to Christ, this union that Paul has talked about up to this point over and over with those uh, believers who are in Colossae is this union does not happen without total surrender. Okay, your relationship with Jesus is not one foot in and one foot out. Like, that's not practical. That's not possible, right? And, um, and, and so as we week in and week out and we gather and we see the word and, and many of you have known the word and you've heard the word long before you ever came here um, and, and many of you will know the word long after you ever attend here, okay? Um, but here's the reality of it. Every time you interact with God's word, we're trying to establish what it is he wants to communicate and what we are to do in light of it. And sometimes when we look into God's word and we, it's clear and we know this is what God expects us to do in of it. In those moments, we have a choice. We surrender to what God's word calls us to, or we run. And I just want us to be in agreement this morning that we don't always surrender. Not just you, not just me. The reality of a life of pursuit of Jesus is that day in and day out, you have the opportunity and oftentimes the temptation not to surrender, but to run. This morning, you know, I, many of you know, I don't even know how long it's been now, two years maybe, at some point recently, Pastor Aaron and I went to the Bible college we graduated from and we took a master's class on the book of Revelation. And um, I have to be honest with you and tell you that there are few things theologically that wreck me like that scene in Revelation chapter 5. And the reality of the scene in Revelation 5 is what Paul is writing here to the Colossians. As he's building this foundation for for people 2,000 years ago about the superiority of Jesus, we have the privilege, because we have the completed canon of Scripture, to look at the end, at the culmination, and see the one who is worthy, right? See the one who, I mean, just the scene, John is utterly in despair over the fact that there is nobody who can open this scroll and reveal its contents. He's in such despair, he finds himself weeping. One of the elders says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who has overcome 
In the book of Revelation, when you see the word overcome, you know what it means? It means to have died by the shedding of your blood and overcome. The victory has been achieved through the shedding of blood. And the elder tells John, weep no more because this is the one who is qualified. And I understand you and I are not sitting in the throne room of heaven this morning. I understand that you and I are not John firsthand seeing this vision of what's going to take place in heaven. But brothers and sisters, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, week in and week out, day in and day out, you and I are invited into the presence of God to celebrate and to worship the lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome. This is no small thing. And so we spend our lives determining, will we surrender or will we run? I would submit to you this morning, Paul gives us a lot of really good reasons of why we ought surrender, why we ought to surrender. That running isn't the best option. And to this point in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's been building to what will now become the emphasis Going back last week, uh, to last week, we're reminded that, that God has done great work, right? Transferring those who believe from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And one of the things that I want to clarify, because I don't recall saying this last week, one of the things that I want to clarify is that when God has done the work of transferring you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son, when you believe by faith, you don't go back. You remember I gave the illustration of we are transferred from the sanctuary to the foyer when we walk through those doors. Well, if you look down and realize I forgot my purse or my cell phone, you come back through these doors and you pick up whatever belongings you left. So it is not with the kingdom of God in the domain of darkness. We don't go back and forth. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light once and for all if we are in Christ Jesus. Okay, and so we belong now to the kingdom of his beloved son. And as Paul writes about this kingdom, he ascribes to it a king. And that king is Jesus He's setting the stage of Jesus being the rightful king in this new kingdom, in the, 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 the kingdom of the beloved son, for what he's getting ready to say. That's the stage that he set. And so as we embark on this examination this morning of Christ and his ed- headship over all things, particularly in a couple areas, though, Paul will touch on uh, specifically, there's a foundational element of this conversation that must be stated to ensure that it is understood well, all right? And so what I mean by that is, is we prepare to examine Jesus and what Paul would have to say to him to the church at Colossae about the preeminence of Jesus or the headship of Jesus over all things. There's a, a foundation we have to make sure that we have settled this morning, Perhaps you do, and that's great, praise God. But I want to establish this foundation to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Here is that foundation. God has spoken, and what God has spoken is the standard. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken through his Son, the Word of God. And in a world that is ever-changing... And in a world where it seems that absolutely nothing is not up for debate anymore. Everything is debatable. 
Every conversation that takes place about good, wrong, bad, evil, right, right, wrong. I already said that. You get the point, right? All of these conversations, they rage. There's many others. There's one thing that will never change. And that is the standard that God has created. And now I want to pause for just a second. Say, a lot of people would say, well, that ain't right because times change and people change. And, and what maybe somebody wrote thousands of years ago, well, why is that still the standard? Because God never changes. That's why what God says is the standard. And I want you to know this morning that when we're invited to surrender to someone, I'm thankful in knowing that the one we're invited to surrender to doesn't change. I changed my mind. We had a conversation yesterday. We were leaving a basketball game, one of the girls' basketball games, and I said, we had to drive separate because of the circumstances, and I said to Jenna, where are we going? Like, you didn't even tell me where we're going. We're partying in the parking lot. And they all looked at me and said, yeah, we did. We literally said we're going to go to academy, and then you said, oh, yeah, and after academy, I just have to get gas before we go home. Like, and it wasn't even a decision, it was a, but there's this constant, ever-flowing things that change. If I am going to hitch my wagon to someone or to something, it is an encouragement for me to know that it is unchanging. So when God speaks as the standard, that standard never changes. Whether Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, whether he's writing to the church at Rome, or whether we're reading it today, having been the benefactors of God's word being preserved and handed down to us, God has not changed. And so when we think about these standards that God has, has set or established, I want to read a quote from Tony Evans. I don't, whatever you think about him is, is up to you, but this quote encapsulates perfectly the standard. He says this, one in one equals two. No matter what today is, one in one equals two. No matter what tomorrow is, one in one still equals two. But suppose tomorrow, I don't feel like it. It's still two. What if I'm not feeling two? It's still two. The fact of one in one doesn't adjust just because of my feelings. When it's sunny outside, one in one is still two. You know why? Because it's a standard outside of me. It's a standard regardless of how I feel about it, and it still functions whether I adjust to it or not. Only God can set the standard because only he can speak absolutely without error. You cannot measure yourself by your own standards. If you're measuring by yourself, if you are measuring yourself by the wrong ruler, you will come up with the wrong measurement. God has declared the standard. God has declared through the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae that Christ is the head of all things. I'm going to be very frank, very quickly, okay? God doesn't care if you like that. Christ is head of all things. It's a standard outside of us. And if we measure our lives by any other ruler, we will come up short. And this is the argument that Paul is making here as it pertains to Christ. What God has determined about the authority and the standard is outside of our declaration. It's not up for debate. Although everything seems to be, this is not. Christ is the visible representation of God. He is the firstborn. He is the head of all things. He is the means by which everything came to be. And he is the means by which everything holds 
together. Let's read our text beginning in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful this morning that you do not change, that your standard does not change. It never has and it never will. And God, your standard is appointing us to the scene at the throne room of heaven that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome, he has conquered the grave whereby establishing your clearly communicated standard and God, as we interact with your word today and we seek to see Jesus for who he is, the standard... God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, give us hearts that would be ready to surrender. God, help us to be ready to be transparent, to be vulnerable, honest about who we are and where we are and and what we think of Jesus and how we feel about you creating a standard. All of these things, God, stir our hearts today. Cause us to ask the kinds of questions that need to be asked because, God, your word gives us the answers. Help us today to throw up our hands, whether that be figuratively or literally, and praise you again and again for your faithfulness, your grace, and your mercy. Work in our hearts and our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give, three, I'm going to give you three things this morning. Um, pretty straightforward, right? Like I didn't reinvent the wheel here. First of all, I want you to know Christ is the head over all creation, verses 15 through 17. Christ is uniquely qualified to be the head over creation for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons he's uniquely qualified. Number one, he is the image of the invisible God. And that is to say he is the perfect representation of God the Father. He's the image of God. And this verbiage might sound similar, especially if you've been attending Pastor Aaron's class on Genesis. A few weeks ago, he was talking about being made in the image of God, right? And mankind was made in the image of God. And as such, we were designed to have a relationship and fellowship with God. But as we know, man botched this. The very thing we were created for, we could not have because we rebelled and we disobeyed God. That was what the Bible would refer to as the first Adam. But the second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, he's the perfect representation of the Father. He represented rightly the Father and everything that the Father stood for and everything that the Father was. He's perfectly revealed who the Father is, what the Father is like, and how the Father can be known, just to name a few things Christ has done as the, in, as the image of the invisible God. 
John would tell us in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 9, that anyone who has seen him, that is Jesus, has seen the Father. So you can't, you can't, I mean, he perfectly encapsulates there for us and, and outlines clearly that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the perfect, the most perfect, accurate, exact representation of the Father. And so Christ, he has this authority over all creation, but not just because he perfectly represented God, although that's true, but because he's also the very reason that the creation that is subject to him exists. Paul tells the church here at Colossae that all things that exist, all of them, were created through him and for him. See, you got to understand this morning, there is nothing that exists that came to be outside of God's creative genius. It is not an accident. It is not chance. It's not an afterthought. Everything that exists, exists. Because God spoke it into being. Now, everything as we know it today isn't necessarily what God spoke into being. A great, just very easy example of this is animals. Okay? God spoke into existence a dog kind. He did not speak into existence beagles, German shepherds, Rottweilers, Dobermans, golden doodles. In fact, we made golden doodles and we all know that. It's a golden retriever in a poodle. So God has created everything that exists in its original creation, going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. It's not an accident. It didn't evolve over billions of years. It came to be when the Son, who perfectly represents the Father, spoke it into existence. And it's important to establish that Paul is not saying that Jesus was the first thing created, when he says that Christ is the firstborn over all creation, it's important to make this distinction because this is actually how a Jehovah's Witness, for example, would interpret this passage. That Christ was created, and then after he was created, he created everything else. And it's interesting, when you, when you, if you look into the, the, the scriptures, as they would call them, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually add the word other six times in this passage. To communicate that Christ was created and then he created other things. Nowhere in the original language, the Greek, which Paul would have wrote in, does the word other ever appear. So it's important for us to understand Christ was not created. He always has been and he always will be. Okay, As we understand him, the savior of the world, the son of God, yes, he took on flesh and was born. But before that, he was not a creative being created being, any more than the Father was. They've existed always, have and will. And so we've got to understand that as we use the Jehovah's Witnesses as an an example, what they've done is manipulated the Word of God to advance their theology. What they've really tried to do is create their own standard. But God has already created the standard in all things. And as we've seen, as we've discussed, Christ was not created in order that he could create. He always has been, always will be. And the idea here to be the firstborn is to teach uh, that, that he was what preceded all of creation. And that because he preceded it and is actually responsible for the creation of it, he is sovereign over it. 
And this is important, right? Because if we don't have a theology or an understanding of God that says Christ has made all things and is in control of all of those things, guess what we try to do? We try to find a way to make ourselves not being part of what's underneath his authority. We do that with questions like, but did God really say? It's a very familiar question, right? You see, Christ is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is sovereign over things that are visible and he is sovereign over the invisible, whether that be positions or people. That's how Paul summarizes it here. Whether it's positions or people, all things were created by him and for him. In other words, everything that was created was created to bring him glory. We understand now why that's so difficult in the world we live in because of the presence of sin, right? must understand that although everything was created to bring him glory, everything is not functioning in the way in which it was intended to function, again, because of the presence of sin. But that no less takes away from their purpose. Just because something doesn't function like it's supposed to, like this is a, a, a pointer, clicker, mouse thingy. I don't know why, I can't remember what it's called. And its purpose is to shine a red light or to advance my slides so that you guys can see them on the screen. If the battery quits and it doesn't work anymore, its purpose is still that it would change the slides. Just because the world is marred by sin and broken doesn't mean that it was not created for the purpose of bringing glory to the sun. And the reality is, again, if we go back to this scene in, in Revelation chapter 5 in the throne room, everything one day will again bring glory to the Son. This is the standard that God has created. Everything is by him, for him, for his glory. So he's the head of all creation. When it comes to the specifics of the spiritual world, he's also the head of the church. In verses 18 and 19, he's also the head of the church, right? It literally says he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, be preeminent. I think it's a commonly understood thing that the church is under the headship of Christ. He is the head of the body. Paul would tell the church in Corinth, for example, that people there were to teach parts of the body of Christ, they're all members belonging to a body. Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader of it. And as the leader of it, being preeminent over all things, being sovereign over all things, he's also the sustainer of it. So Christ is over the church, but he keeps the church afloat. He keeps the church functioning. He keeps the church, what we might say from God's word is, he keeps the church being built until she's presented to him of her splendor. All creation we have seen is subject to Christ, but so is the church. If you say that you've trusted Christ, excuse me, and you belong to the church, you're literally acknowledging that you understand you're subject to him. You are underneath his headship and his authority. You see, the church that he is head over, he has created through his death and resurrection. And now, after having established her, he is building her as the authority until he completes his work of building the church. Again, then, to look ahead to the book of Revelation, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ, 
the bridegroom and the church, the bride, will be wed together. So Paul doubles down yet again when it comes to the authority of Christ. And once again, it's about the fact that Christ is how God perfectly revealed himself to the world. It pleased the Father for his fullness to dwell in Christ. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All over the Old Testament, there is language of God's dwelling and his presence amongst his people and in places. For example, the temple was filled by the presence of God in Ezekiel 44, verse 4. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. You see, when Christ came, he was not only bearing the glory of God, but all that God is and all that dwells in the Father also dwells in Christ. He didn't just come so that people could know what God looked like. Literally, everything that the Father is, Christ came as in the flesh and revealed to us on the earth in this context, right, of an earthly understanding. And so everything that the Father is, Christ is also. And it pleased the Father for him to, to use Christ or to send the Christ to be the representation of who he is and all that he is. And there's an acknowledgement here of Paul where he talks about Christ being the authority. When Paul writes that the fullness of God dwelled in Christ, he is absolutely saying that Christ is fully God. He's the standard that God has given to reveal who God is. And so he's the head over all creation. It's the head over the church that he might be preeminent, that he would be before all things. But I think sometimes for us, there's a reality where we interact with God's word and we say, okay, I can see some of this. Like, okay, this is information. Some of these things are cognitive, right? And I can understand that the Bible is saying that Christ is head over this, and Christ is head over that. Christ is the authority. The reality is, I, I, for me, maybe you're like me, I don't know, there comes a point where you say, okay, how, does, how or where does the rubber meet the road? Maybe the question is, so what now? Well, Paul gives us the what now right in this passage. Because Christ is also the head over the plan of the Father. It's not as clearly outlined for us. But he says, I'm going to go back to verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace blood of his cross. You see, the Father gave Christ for the purpose of bringing himself glory by redeeming sinful man through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so the Father has this plan. It's not a reaction. Okay, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to what took place in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Sin didn't enter into the world, and then God say, oh, man, what are we going to do? Okay, son, I think this is how we're going to have to handle this situation. Are you up to that task? Before the foundation of the world, before there was any concept of who God was or what God was like, the plan to redeem sinful man because of the presence of sin had already been established. And it began to unfold when creation was created. 
And then sin entered into the world, and then God took a people for himself, and he, he called them to be distinct and be his people and, and live a certain way for a certain purpose. And sin was present, and the law was given, and so the knowledge of sin now became present. And, and this is all part of the plan of God unfolding. That was the Old Testament, culminating to the point where God takes on flesh, becomes a man, right, and is crucified, died only to be raised again to fulfill the plan of the Father, to glorify the Father and to redeem sinful man. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. It's Christ who, being the fullness of God, made peace between man and God through his blood at the cross of Calvary. You know, sometimes I think we interact with God's word and we read things and we gloss over them. We take them for granted. Made peace. Christ made peace through the blood of his cross between sinful man and a holy God. Just like we said last week, right? Everybody is born belonging to the domain of darkness. And until you are transferred from that domain into the kingdom of the sun, you still belong to the darkness. You still live in the kingdom, in the realm, in the domain of darkness. So it is with peace. You are born at odds with God. I know, that's not a popular message. Our culture changes and our societies change and we're really not that bad. And, you know, God just wants us to be happy. And I'm not trying to be facetious. This is the culture that we live in. But, but Paul literally says here that you had no peace with God until Christ's blood was shed at the cross of Calvary. And then you apply, it's applied to your life through faith. When you are transferred from the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. You must understand this morning, you are born at odds with God. And it is only through Christ, the standard God has created, that you can have peace with God. You can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't attain it yourself, you can't come to church enough, you can't serve enough, you can't give enough, you can't help enough. There is never enough that you can do to attain the peace of God. It only is made possible through the blood of Christ's cross. And this is what Paul says. We were estranged, no peace. But it was God's plan to reconcile sinful man to himself through the blood of Christ, whereby we're granted peace. This peace only comes through the head of all things. In our world, I think you would agree with me, everyone claims to be pursuing peace. I think it's a noble thing for us to say we want peace. And I think it's a noble thing for us to do things to try to help cultivate peace. But if God's word is true, the only way we have peace is through Christ. You know, I'm not, I've told you before, I'm not a fan of like little quippy sayings and bumper sticker slogans. But all week when I was working through this, this same stinking bumper sticker just kept coming into my mind. And you guys have probably seen it. And it says, um, it's, it's talking about having or knowing peace. And it says, uh, uh, N-O, no peace. K-N-O-W, no peace. 
It creates this difference between without knowing, K-N-O-W, peace, there is no peace. And bumper sticker slogan, but it's one of the truer ones that I've seen. We can try as we may. Our world, listen, nobody, I hope, is denying that our world is broken. Our world is absolutely broken. The problem is we deny how we believe peace is actually achieved. And the saddest reality, I just want to level with you this morning, is many folks in churches just like ours do way more to try to establish peace in the context of a social setting or a social gathering than they do to try to uh, achieve peace in Christ. And God's word is clear that without peace in Christ, this is just a band-aid at best. This is why I, look, this is why I'm not a big fan of social platforms. Not that we ought not be trying to do good and help people and love our brother and sister, right? And help those who need to be helped. We're, we're, we're commanded to do that, right? But you can serve every social program in the world for the duration of your life and it will not achieve true peace. Because without Christ, there is none. Christ is the means whereby peace is realized. And again, this was the plan of the Father. That he would bring peace between entities who were at odds with one another. That he would give his son to be the sacrifice for the thing that has robbed man of peace. Sin. The blood of Christ is where sin is dealt with. And sin is the robber of peace. And that is why trying to find peace apart from Christ ain't possible. That was good English, wasn't it? Ain't. It is impossible. Because the only thing that deals with sin is the shed blood of Jesus. Without Christ, there is still the problem of sin. And without dealing with the problem of sin, there can be no peace. The plan of the Father was to reconcile sinful man to himself through the head. That is Christ. And so here's the deal. Christ is supreme in all things. He is priority. Whether we are talking about the mere fact, I say mere like it's not a big deal, about the mere fact that you came into existence, whether it's the fact that you still exist, most of us didn't get up this morning and think, oh, God saw fit to give me breath. But he did. And I know it because you're breathing. We just assume. But Christ is supreme, is the arbiter and the determiner of whether or not you will take your next breath. It's his. He gives it to you. We don't own it. It doesn't belong to us. And so he is supreme in, in our existence, in, in, in coming to existence, in our existence, in the fact that we're sustained. He's supreme in the fact that we belong to the church. He's supreme in the fact that we either have peace or we do not. No matter what it is, Christ is supreme in it. If I could summarize it this way, it would be this. Literally everything in this life is about Christ. And literally everything in the next life is also about Christ. Because everything is all about Christ. 
He has been and is at the forefront of God's plan for humanity. And we sit and we hear and we say, yep, that's right. Jesus is at the forefront of God's plan to redeem sinful man or to bring himself glory or however you want to phrase it. But I want to ask you a question. Is he at the forefront of your life? You might be quick to say, oh, yes, I understand. He's supreme in all things. But let's, let's say, does that include my life? He's supreme in all things, but, you know, I got to do it this way. He's supreme in all things, but surely he wouldn't want me to do that. He's supreme in all things, but, you know, how I feel really matters here, and I'm not trying to be insensitive. But God's word isn't concerned with our feelings. God's word is concerned with his holiness. And you and I have the opportunity, with Christ being at the forefront of our lives, to pursue and manifest God's holiness. He's at the forefront of our lives, whether we recognize it, acknowledge it, whatever you want to say, or not. And so the best thing is to realize right now, to accept the fact right now, to surrender right now to the reality that Christ is at the forefront of your life, whether you know it yet or not. You can surrender to this reality or you can run from this reality. It is a reality nonetheless. God has created the standard and the standard is Christ. And if you don't realize that in this life, when you recognize Christ as Savior, you will realize it in the next one when you recognize him as judge. God's word, man, we're not playing games. This is serious. Every one of us this morning, you maybe you never heard it before today. Every one of us sitting here this morning has heard that we were created by God for his glory and that sin ruined that. And the only way to deal with that sin is through believing in Christ for salvation. And if you do that, you see him as savior. If you don't, he is your judge. And some of us, we've got to give some honest consideration to whether or not Christ is really at the forefront of our lives. Do we really live our lives like he is supreme? Do we really recognize him as who he is, the standard, the savior, the judge? Maybe today will be the day that all of us, whether we've acknowledged this previously or not, but may today be the day where all of us see God's standard for what it is, good just and right. May we see God's standard worthy to be celebrated and lived for. Christ is head over all things. Creation, you, me, the church, especially the plan of the Father to reconcile sinful man to himself. No other way. So I would ask you this morning, do you know Christ as Savior? Just, I mean, I can't make it any more bare bones than that. Have you trusted the shed blood of Jesus Christ to reconcile you to the Father? It's not a fanciful thing. 
Jesus calls it a childlike faith. That's not all there is to know, but it's what's necessary to know for salvation. Have you trusted Christ, placing him at the forefront of your life, understanding that you were separated from God and you've been reconciled to him, or you can be reconciled to him through faith in the finished work of Christ? If you haven't, maybe today is the day. If you have, let's let's do some honest assessment. Ask the Lord to search our hearts. May we live our lives for his glory because that's the reason we were created to begin with. Whatever it may be this morning, understand that Christ is head over all things and worthy of our love, our affection, our adoration, our worship. He's worthy of everything you and I have to offer. And even as we've already sang, we really don't have much to offer. He's far beyond who we are, and yet in his goodness, we get to draw near to him. So may today be the day that you consider these realities and determine whether you know Christ as Savior or whether you need to know Christ as Savior. He's head over all things, whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, and we're all going to stand before him. Let's pray together. Father, thankful today, even as... How we've already prayed that you are the unchanging standard. God, if I can be honest, sometimes I look into your word and I don't understand why you do what you do. I don't understand why you've done what you've done. In my heart of hearts, the best I can muster up, God, is that it was according to your good pleasure to save sinful man. Simply out of a work of your grace and your mercy, God, you redeem sinful man to yourself through Christ. You're glorified in that. Our lives are changed through that. God, there are so many things that become realities in, in the lives of sinful people when they trust Christ for salvation. And so, God, I just pray today for the heart that, that hasn't done that. I pray today for the individual who is, is wrestling as we pray now with the realities of whether or not Christ is really supreme in their life. I pray, God, that you would help the one who may understand cognitively, yep, he is over all things. But God, I pray that you would help them also to be willing to just ask the simple question, is he the authority in my life? Do I give him the, the priority and the position that he belongs in because he is head over all things. And Father, for those who would be here and they would, they would say and they would know that they have trusted Christ for salvation, God, I pray that you would challenge those hearts as well. God, that those hearts might be stirred just to give some honest assessment and consideration to uh, the priorities of their lives. God, it is so easy to get caught up in good things that can become bad things because we've put them in wrongful places and we've allowed things that shouldn't be the priority to be the priority. God, you have given your son and he is preeminent. He is over everything. And he is worthy of all that we have to offer. And in your good pleasure, you take the little bit that we have and you use it for your glory. And so, Father, use our time as we finish here for your glory. Challenge our hearts. Encourage us. May you be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen.